Well, we're going to continue with our series, um, and we're going to look at the same book as we did last week, the book of Luke, same chapter, and pretty much the same scenario, yet we're going to look at a different character that's emphasized in Scripture in the scenario. So turn with me over to Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, verses 25 through 28, Luke 2, 25 through 28. It says, and there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him, verse 26, by the Holy Spirit, that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came, verse 27, in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, He then took him into his hands, verse 28, and blessed God. Lord, help us as we study. There are three things about which I want to talk to you regarding this man. Simeon was, uh, well, let me say, I like to talk about Simeon because he he was your everyman Christian, if you will. Though Christianity had not been established, because Christ had not yet died. We can superimpose the principles that are most important for us with respect to our obedience to God and our identification to Old Testament saints and begin to talk about them as if they are brothers of ours, though they had not yet experienced what salvation means. And indeed, Simeon was an everyman kind of guy with respect to church. He was an ordained priest. He didn't have his MDiv. We have no record that, the, that he was called a prophet or a particular kind of office that allowed him the distinction of being known by the entire nation. He was probably the fellow who helped park cars at church. Donkeys. <laughs> Made sure everybody had their own stall and was tied up right. Or maybe an usher. Maybe a greeter. Maybe a life group leader. Simeon was your garden variety lover of God. And he came into the house one day and he saw something that other people did not. We talked last week about how the queue had to be fairly long with respect to the number of babies that were to be dedicated on any given day. Jerusalem and and the temple were the places at which these children were to be dedicated. And so it became a, a bottleneck, a funnel right into the spot for every child who had been born. And could be three, four hundred kids a day. The temple was not very large with respect to the real requirements of worship. There were ancillary rooms on the outside, but but the temple itself, uh, with respect to the things that really happened with the priesthood and sacrifice, it was a fairly small area. And there could have been hundreds of people crammed into a very small area in order just to perform this service, not to mention all the others that were required. And there was Simeon. He just happened to be in the temple that day. But he saw something that everybody else seemed to not see. I don't know if they intentionally ignored it. They just weren't aware. But Simeon was. And I think there there are three characteristics which the Bible highlights that can help us see God where others do not. Notice him in our environs, 
where other people just say, that's a bad circumstance, dude. You need to do something about that. Yet we don't respond like the world would respond because we can see things differently. Three things. One, it says that he was righteous. So we're going to talk about what righteousness looks like. Two, he was devout. And we're going to continue with ours. So I'm going to use the synonym of reverent with respect to devout. And then three, he was looking for the consolation of Israel. And for the third R, I'm going to use rubbernecking. Let's talk about righteous. In the Old Testament, righteousness was defined by two characteristics. And before you begin to question my Old Testament references with respect to this, remember that Jesus had not yet died, and though this account is in the New Testament writings and that it's found in the Gospels, it's still an Old Testament reality for everybody who lives during that time. And so they're still functioning under the Old Covenant. And under the Old Covenant, Old Testament reality, righteousness was defined in two ways. One, how you related to God, and two, how you related to people. How we relate to God defines our righteousness because there's no way we can relate to him rightly, excuse me, there's no way we can relate to him wrongly and relate to humanity rightly. And everything about being found whole in your relationship of worship to God was summed up in one commandment that had two sections. So the people were asking, give us the greatest commandment, Jesus. And in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 39, Jesus says, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And then the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. He tied two commandments together and inextricably bound them. They were never to be separated. That these two made one. That you really could not love God well unless you loved man well. Therefore, if you didn't love God well, you shouldn't, surely could not love man well. And if you did not love man well, it reflected on how you really loved God. The two were together. And so this righteousness standard came from that kind of idea. Do you really love God? Because if you really love God, you will love man. Well, let's talk about what it means to love God. Jesus said, if you love me, John chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, our Western society has, has redefined love, generally speaking, from a, a, a romantic point of view. So we love with our emotions. We love based on our emotions. We don't love on the basis of how God loves us. We make up our definition of love. And then as a result of that definition, we then say we fall out of love after we fell into love. Because the definition demanded that we feel a certain way while we were in love. By the way, I'm not quite sure whether it's ever a good idea to fall at any time. I'm just, I'm just saying, is that when do, we, when do we ever ascribe the idea of falling as being a profitable thing? So why do we say we fell in love? Well, it came from, generally speaking, I left all my principles. I left my standards, my moorings, everything I knew to be true, and my emotions just took over and I just fell for the guy. 
she was amazing. I didn't care anymore about anything. I was just captivated by her. Why do you want to fall? Because you're going to have to get up at some point. At some point, you're going to have to get up. And it's usually right after you say, I do. <laughs> then you start standing in the wreck and say, wait a minute, wait a minute. Hmm. Better to grow into love than fall in love. Grow in love rather than fall in love. I'm just saying, that's what the Bible says. There's nothing in the Bible that says you ever fall in love with somebody. Any place. Your emotions follow your commitment. You don't let your commitment follow your emotions. You can't judge anything by how you feel. Hear me. You can't, you can't judge anything of significance by how you feel. You don't make any good decisions, big decisions, based on how you feel. Because how you feel is based on how you feel. Now, I know you, you don't understand what I said. Let, let me help you. It's wintertime. And when we were growing up in Kansas, winter came strong. About five degrees colder than it is here, much more snow. We go out and play in the snow and throw snowballs and build snowmen, the whole works, hours upon hours. Mama said, time to come and eat. We were happy. She said, first, go wash your hands. Anybody know what it felt like? That after you were in the snow for a long period of time, you went to wash your hands? What did that water feel like? Woo! Warm water felt scalding. Cold water felt hot. But you couldn't figure it out. How do I wash my hands when I'm not feeling right? Your external stimulus was lying to you about what it really was because your internal was all messed up. And if your internals are all messed up, how you feel about somebody cannot be judged accurately. Are you listening to me? Do not let Hollywood begin to determine how in the world you should get married. Yes. Let the Bible. I'm telling you, let the Bible. Yes. Because after you're feeling it for a minute, you ain't going to feel it. You're not going to feel it no more. You're not going to feel it. Now, nobody can come into a relationship completely whole. So everything on the inside of you can't be fixed before you say, I do. This is why God said, you decide. You make a commitment, and then you fix all the other stuff later. And if your emotions aren't what you thought they should be, when, when, after you said, I do, then you train your emotions to follow your commitment. And that's what lordship is in the heart. You train your soul to follow the will of God on a regular basis rather than you deciding what the will of God is based on how you feel. I got a whole seminar on that right there. Feelings have nothing to do with you deciding major decisions. Feelings are there in order for God to allow you to enjoy the decisions you've made. That's why they're there. So I love my bride, and she makes it really easy for me to love her. She's an amazing woman. I ain't got to work real hard. But there are moments. Everybody goes through and regardless of how I feel, I've made a commitment. And my commitment says I will be romantic even though I may not feel like being romantic right now. Because my feelings have nothing to do with it. And then what happens is once I make a decision based on my commitment, then my feelings follow. And all of a sudden, I'm beginning to enjoy the moment that I didn't think I would. Now, 
I know I'm talking at a very at a fairly significant level beyond that which most of you have ever experienced or delve into because you, you, you really don't know how to apply the Bible to your own soul. But I'm telling you, this works best because whatever you are feeling, you can then take back and say, no, if it doesn't agree with the word of God, I'm not going to let it rule me. I'm just not. It makes you stable. It makes you dependable. When the fire starts heating up, you don't run. When it gets really hard, you anchor yourself. It produces safety and security in relationships when somebody decides like this. When they don't make their decisions based like this, everybody's more insecure than they should be, and they grow more insecure. And then that insecurity manifests itself in certain kinds of stability that are really weird. I know I just said some oxymoronic stuff, but listen, when somebody is insecure in, and when somebody's insecure and they are, they are stable in their insecurity, that's strange. You look at them and say, you've become really, you've grown into something that just isn't quite right. I got a whole seminar on that. Talk about righteousness. We love God by our obedience, by our commitment. Jesus said, love me by doing what I say. Not how you feel, but by doing what I say. And then we love people. We decide to love people. We do right by people. We care for people. James said it like this with respect to our commitments to humanity. He said, if you say you love God who you can't see, but you hate your brother who you can, you are a liar. James is strong. I mean, I'm saying, couldn't you have said that a little different? I mean, just, just a little softer. But the Lord wanted to, 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 to help people understand how serious he is about the idea of, of bifurcating your love for him from your love for humanity. Can't do it. And so Job begins to talk about, in his exposition in Job 29, about how 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 good he has responded, how well he has lived with respect to humanity. And Job 29 is really the, the men's version of Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31 is known as the virtuous woman. And when a woman reads that, she says, that's my goal. Well, we have ours, which is Job 29. And Job 29 talks about how a man ought to be. And it's, it's challenging and beautiful. If you take it out of context, which you need to do in order to read it well, because Job is saying this thing, these things, trying to justify himself before God, which never works. He's trying to say, God, I don't deserve this treatment that I'm getting because I am so wonderful. <laughs> I was talking with someone the other day, and they were talking to me about the circumstance of Ananias and Sapphira found in Acts chapter 5. And this couple was a couple in the church. And, and they, their people were, at that time, giving a lot of things. They were selling pieces of property and giving it to the church. It was just an extraordinary period of benevolence. And Ananias and Sapphira sold a piece of property. And they decided to give half of it to the church. Nothing wrong with that. You don't have to give everything you sell. They decided to give half. Great. The problem was they told the church they were giving it all. That's not good. So they appeared before Peter 
And Ananias gave his resources. And Peter said, is that all? Ananias said, yep. Peter said, why are you lying to the Holy Spirit? Wish you hadn't done that. You're going to die today. And he died. He didn't come home to his wife. His wife comes to the church, says, uh, hey, I'm looking for my husband. You found him? You know where he is? He came here to give. Peter said, yeah, he gave. By the way, did you all give the entire amount that you said you were going to give? Oh, absolutely. We gave the whole amount that was sold. Well, they took your husband out, and they're about to take you out too. Bye. Now, every day I beg God to never let that happen in my church. If there's one miracle I don't want, it is that one. Who would come? Who would come? Because we're not talking about just lying about money. The, the larger principle is, I'm saying I'm giving my all to God, but I'm only living halfway. Know anybody like that? Every, listen, the whole, half the church would die when they came through the front door. <laughs> Lord, no, please. Have mercy. Now, my point is this. The person who was mentioning this passage said, isn't that kind of extreme? I mean, how could God do that? I prefer to look at it from the other way. You see, we forget how kind and benevolent God is. We, 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 we misunderstand his mercy and tolerance and forbearance. And we think that somehow we are deserving of breathing today because we are worthy of it. And we forget that God's Standard operating procedure is extreme in mercy. Extreme. I know we all consider it normal, but the reality is the wages of sin is death. All of us have blown it. We are worthy of dying. That we have not, that we do not suffer the consequences of our misdeeds. And God looks at humanity en masse and looks at them with mercy rather than judgment is amazing that is extreme and if you look at it from his perspective every day you'll wake up grateful that you get to breathe one more day that's how kind he treats you and we're not talking about one sin and I realize your life you think is better than most therefore you're, so, you're somewhat a little bit more deserving I mean people like Hitler should die not people like me but with, with respect to sin, God looks at it as equal. And you can't even count the number of transgressions you've committed. You can't count them. You can't count, them how, you can't count the number of transgression, transgressions you did yesterday. Last week, much less your entire life. And that the Lord has been benevolent and kind to forgive all those is extreme. That he allows one person every once in a while to experience the judgment of his consequences, of his actions, is normal. Are you listening to me? That's what should happen to all of us. You need to see and feel and hear differently. If you don't, you'll always accuse God of being unfair when you think somebody didn't deserve what they got. Are you listening? And he is never unfair. 
He is extreme in that he sent his son to die for your sin. How much more does he have to show in terms of the meter hitting the red with respect to how kind and benevolent he is to mankind? Never should anybody begin to question his goodness and mercy and grace when somebody doesn't make it like we think they should. Don't ever accuse him of somehow being neglectful or somehow being harsh to somebody that you think was really good. I don't know any good people. Not one. Paul says in Romans, there is none good, no, not one. The definition of good biblically, perfect. That's the biblical definition. So that means that all of us fall short and are worthy of being punished. That we are not and this is why I say on a regular basis, when things are going bad, when your life is, just looks like it's in the toilet, wake up and remember this one thing. You ain't going to hell. You ain't going to hell. And worship. Just worship. Because it will make you think about all the stuff that you could have been through and God didn't allow. Merry Christmas. <laughs> I just got to say that because you, you about preached under the chair. I saw most of you just... How we treat humanity is really important. Job was sitting there thinking, God, I don't deserve any of this. And you have to look at that passage in Job 29 differently. You can't just look at it in context if you want to understand how man needs to treat man. But it's a beautiful passage if it's set aside from the context in which it was written to understand how we need to reach out to those. Because Job says, when the poor were disenfranchised, they came looking for me. When, when the widow had no place to go, I gave her resources. When the orphan was on the street, I took him in. Job is talking about his love for humanity. When we speak about righteousness, it's right standing with God and it's making sure you love humanity. That's the Old Testament definition, the Old Covenant definition of righteousness. Indeed, it applies to us today, but there's, a, there's an addition to that with respect to a righteousness which is imputed that comes from the right living that Christ lived and then gave to us as believers. Don't have time to get into that, but we're talking about Simeon with respect to how he was defined. Secondly, reverent. Says he was a devout man. And I'm using the term reverent as a synonym for, for devout. Um, reverence ought to be given to those who live in such a way that, that they're described as holy people. Now, I can say this about my profession, but I'm not saying it in a critical way. I'm saying it in a factual way. That there are so many people who do what I do that have inherited the title as reverend because of their education and their position. And I'm not mad at them. Great. I understand it's culturally normative. But when it comes to me, I've chosen not to do that, but, but to be known by my function rather than my assumed character. Therefore, you call me pastor, Brett, not reverend. Now, if I happen to live in such a way that I deserve your respect, then you can call me what you want. But it's not because I got a degree or because I have a title or because I sit in a chair. It's because I have lived in a certain way. And this is what we see Simeon did. He was described as devout. Something about his life just oozed holiness. 
when you got next to him, you just felt the presence of God being affirming his life on a regular basis. <laughs> this was a, a weighty human being. And there are three things with respect to reverence we need to think about. One, he was a God-fearing man. Now, God-fearing doesn't mean that we cower before God on a regular basis. It, it simply means that we have a deep respect for who he is and we don't want to do anything that would offend him. And we need to live like that. To honor his lordship. His lordship means something to us. It's not just a title we give him. It is a function that he has in our life. That he is our lord, our master, our ruler, our owner, our controller. And when he says jump, we say how high. Secondly, that he was a man of worship. That something about his life, wherever he went, it just kind of... It, 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 there, there was no difference between the secular and the sacred for him. Everything about him was involved in worship. And we pretty much relegated worship to be what we, we do maybe in a small group or in a prayer meeting or what we do on Sunday morning. But worship is intended to be a life lived well before God. And there is no separation between what you do at work and what you do here. There shouldn't be. There should be no separation between how you parent, how you befriend, how you give how you serve in the community, and what you do here. That it should be one contiguous motion of constant and consistent affirmation of God's presence in your life. Wanting him to be inserted every place you go. I, I, I don't... I understand what I'm about to say, and, but, but, but I just don't get it. You know how you can, you can, you can understand something but not get it. We, we have a society that believes in separation of church and state. And I get it. The church has been a mess for a long period of time. The Catholics didn't do a very good job of incorporating good leadership in their government. And when they combined the two and became a theocracy for the most part in the papacy, it was a mess. I get that. And there have been so many circumstances where people have not responded well when they brought God into a governmental setting or to a business setting or tried to enact some principles that were most right and did it in a wrong way. I get all that. But I can't figure out why in the world, since the Bible is the greatest book to instruct people regarding conduct and character, to produce the kind of people that are the most exemplary forms of humanity God ever made, why would you want to separate that from good government? I don't know. Don't want a theocracy, not advocating for it. But I don't want God to be completely removed from how we treat human beings. Are you kidding me? I'm 53. We prayed in school when I was in grade school. We prayed. Never had a kid come in with a gun and shoot up the school. Never. It did not happen. It didn't happen in my generation. It didn't happen in my mama's generation. It didn't happen in my grandparents' generation. Happens all the time now. Happens so often that we don't even take much notice. And I tell you what, now they're calling the pastors. I get calls all the Chaplain Fuller, Pastor Fuller, will you come and speak to our teens? What about the separate? We don't care. We, we, we don't care. 
We don't care. I get invitations all the time to go talk to football teams, students, colleges. Please come because we think you could help us. I, I think I can. But I could have helped you long before we had the incident. Again, I'm not talking about a theocracy. I'm just talking about the principles that make the best version of humanity God could ever think of. Why do you want to separate that from good principles of government? That just doesn't make any good sense at all. Somehow or another, somebody's got to wake up and say, there's a way that we can throw out the, the bathwater without killing the baby too. There's a way we can do this. Huh. Something about our worship that needs to be contiguous. That when you go someplace, that you take Jesus with you. You take the character of God that he's created with you. And I'm not saying that you walk up into your workplace and say, okay, now we're going to start a Bible and start praying in tongues. Don't do that. That's stupid. That's just stupid. That's just stupid Christianity. Stupid Christianity. But what I am saying is you bring in the presence of God with the finest principles of work ethic. With what it means to sacrifice and help somebody else do their job so they don't get reprimanded for being either derelict or incompetent. And all you're doing is practicing the principles that love people best in a work environment and making the entire place better. They don't know it, but you're bringing the kingdom of God to bear. All they know is that it smells different in here. It feels better. Can, can, I, can I work next to your cubicle all the time? I really, can we go to lunch every day? That's all I'm saying. Don't leave God out. These people need him. Lastly, purity. There ought to be something of purity that's in your life. And I think it was right in, in Simeon's life because it said that he, he was able to see things. And, and, and he saw this, this baby when nobody else did. And the Bible says in, in I think it's Matthew 5, 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall what? See God. Something about your purity allows you to see better. Allows you to see God in areas beyond your natural sight so that you don't have to freak out every time something goes bad because you know the Lord is right in the middle of this. He's helping me. I see him. But if you're impure, you have things that cloud your vision and you can't see him as well as you should. And purity is a, is a virtue that has been minimized in our society. If we care about anything, we care about conduct. And I'm not quite sure we do about that. Morality is something that everybody considers to be relative. And so nobody's trying to act with the highest moral principles. But if we were to care about something, that would be probably the thing we most care about, is whether people are doing right, not whether they are right. God cares about whether you are right so that you can do right without always having to think about doing right. You know the most competent people in the world are those that don't have to think about what they do well. They just do it. The best basketball player you know. Give it to me, fellas. LeBron. 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 The, well, okay. LeBron. <laughs> I thought somebody was going to say somebody. MJ. I thought, you know, but that, that's cool. LeBron's great. The, the, listen, I, he does stuff that he doesn't even have to think about. It just comes natural to him. It's knee jerk. With me? What, coach? What? How do I dribble? Dri dribble? <laughs> things come natural. And it's so important that you get to the place where things just come natural for you. 
purity allows for that which is on the inside to just naturally come out on the outside. Lastly, it says that he was looking for something, rubbernecking. He was looking for the consolation of Israel. If we were to take a videotape of all of your prayer life, I I would dare say that 95% of it would be about you. Help me in my finances. Help me in my calling. Help me and my kids. Help my knucklehead husband. Lord, help my friends. Help my supervisor that just can't get it together and doesn't value me like they should and see what I can bring to the company. Help, Lord, me promote... It's, it's mostly about you. Now, let me say this. I'm not mad at you. At least you pray. I'm glad you're dependent on God on something. I'm glad. But there's a place you can go differently in prayer that goes beyond what you're looking for for you. This man was looking for the consolation of his people. And as a result, he was able to see things that others were not. What do you focus on when you come in the house? What do you focus on in your prayer life? It's amazing how your eyes will be open to see things that you did not see prior because now you're looking for something different. God wants you to see things and be attentive constantly to the things that are going on outside of your natural purview. Please, I'm begging you, let the presence of God be seen in this holiday season in your life like you've never seen it before because you're looking for something different. Your soul has been purified. You've allowed the presence of God to live in the, in, on the inside and all you want to do is make him happy because you're living right. You regard his lordship as something that needs to be applied to your life regularly. You're treating humanity the way you should. You're not separating the secular and the sacred. You're doing exactly what ought to be done so that you can see him better. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I'm asking for your grace and mercy that you would empower and bless and strengthen.